0: Hi, welcome to Episode 7 of Section Hiking the Appalachian Trail. I'm your host, John Eskelson, and this episode is R-E-S-P-E-C-T, meaning hopefully by the end of this episode, we'll have a better idea of what it means to be a good steward out in the woods, and maybe how it relates to Aretha Franklin and her most popular song. We are sponsored today by the Committee to Restore America's National Parks. This is an advocacy group for everyday people who want to convince Congress to eliminate the $12 billion maintenance backlog in our national parks. Please go to their website and support them at www.restoreamericasnationalparks.org. I don't know about you, but there are times when I have in my mind something I want to do. But then as I get more involved and more. The bright lines and the bright whites of this good thing start to fade as shades of gray and nuance pop in. This sort of thing is happening as I'm preparing to start section hiking the Appalachian Trail. Among the podcasts that I listen to and some of the magazines I occasionally peruse in books, there are several articles about how the tone and tenor of the AT has started to change in recent years where the number of hikers, plus an apparent party culture, plus marketing by outdoor companies, plus a bunch of other factors I have no idea about, are creating an atmosphere or are kind of leading to an atmosphere. I don't want to suggest causation. So that those who actually have to manage the parks and keep them in good condition for all of us um, are on the verge of saying no mas, no more. Uh, This is especially true down in Georgia at the start of the Appalachian Trail uh, in Springer and up at the end in uh, Baxter State Park in Maine. It's interesting to me that the historic Southern end of the trail at Springer Mountain in North near, sorry, North of Atlanta, Georgia and Baxter State Park where the Northern Terminus is located at the top of Mount Cahaden I think that's how you pronounce it are both making noise about saying that the endpoints of the trail may need to move elsewhere because too many hikers aren't cleaning up after themselves or following park rules. I guess in Georgia, the challenge is that in the spring, you'll have something like 200 hikers leaving a day, whereas in the Maine Baxter, in Maine, Baxter State Park has pretty strict rules that are routinely ignored by, uh, by through hikers and other hikers who are celebrating at the top of the mountain at the end of their hikes. Of course, part of this comes as the trail has become more popular than ever before. The AT Conservancy estimates that in the 1970s, only 800 people completed the hike, the through hike, all the way through the Appalachian Trail, which was a huge jump from the 37 known to have completed it in the 1960s. In 2017, over 38 hikers set out on the trail from Georgia which was a 14% increase from 2016 and a 40% increase from 2015. I mean, these numbers are big and they're only recent within the past five years. With the increase, there's also been an increase in trash and junk left behind on the trail. Uh, Poop improperly buried in, in trail shelters full of leftover food and gear and other things, which gives critters like mini bears and full-size bears, a source for food, and a place to go for food. This literally makes it more likely that they will prowl around these shelters looking for food from hikers at night. It frankly makes sense to me that the AT would become so popular and that the culture surrounded it, surrounding it becomes so strong. To take a slightly philosophical view of it, it's a legitimately hard thing to do that's, that's pretty accessible with contemporary gear and all the material that's out there about it. Plus there's a lot of people looking for something to challenging to test them on. And we're also in an age where institutions are failing and traditional communities are losing their pull. So if you're able to kind of create an identity around your trail persona and who you are on the trail, With this great stuff that allows us to hike far and fast pretty lightly in a place that has a very fixed and firm uh, culture, it seems like this is a logical thing. I, I would just say and comment, though, that it's important, even though there's this logical thing out there, this community that forms of people who care about and have find meaning on the trail, that we still need to take care of it. This is not to say that there still isn't magic out in the trail, even as one as popular as the Appalachian Trail. That there aren't long stretches of companionable silence where a hiker can simply walk and enjoy nature and enjoy the trail without the distractions of modern life. At least that's what I'm hoping for. What this has led me to do, though, is think about what sort of things I can do to be a good steward of the outdoors and to minimize my impacts on the land. It took me back to the Leave No Trace principles that are taught in a variety of places, but which were ingrained to me as a Boy Scout. Leave No Trace was conceived of nearly 50 years ago in the 1960s by the United States Forest Service. As the use of public lands increased, however, many land managers for the Forest Service and the National Park Service noticed That the people using the lands were engaging in practices hindering their preservation for future generations. In the 1970s, several outdoors groups, including the Boy Scouts, started implementing what was then known as minimal impact camping. In the 1990s, um, the Leave No Trace Center for Outdoor Ethics was incorporated and formed to train and educate people more broadly about these principles. I would just also note that this could be a model for other areas where the preservation of resources would be useful for future generations. For instance, like in our entitlements where no effort is being made by older people to do anything of the sort. But I digress. One of the notes I read about in preparation for this episode was that oftentimes People need a reason to care about a place in order to learn to minimize their impacts. They need a personal connection to the land. This can occur in many ways, but here are a few. You know, perhaps they value the natural beauty of a place or they invo- they enjoy specific wild plants and animals or they're simply interested in the natural world. For me, I get excited to see and experience this crazy trail that we've made from Georgia all the way up to Maine and just to kind of see the different aspects of it all throughout. Okay. Here are the seven leave no trace principles. One, plan ahead and prepare. Two, travel and camp on durable surfaces only. Three, dispose of waste properly. Four, leave what you find 5. Minimize campfire impacts and be careful with fire generally. 6. Respect wildlife. 7. Be considerate of other visitors. Okay, let's start with the first principle. Plan ahead and prepare. I know that when I adequately prepare for trips into the woods, I feel like I'm better able to accomplish the goals of my trip more safely and enjoyably while simultaneously minimizing the damage I could cause to the land. In too many cases, poor planning results in miserable campers and damage to natural and cultural resources. Apparently rangers often tell stories of campers who have encountered, they've encountered who because of poor planning and unexpected conditions degrade backcountry resources and put themselves at risk. This can mean considering th- several things when planning. For instance, the, the Leave No Trace folks suggest the following. They, they they suggest asking the following questions. What are the goals and expectations of the, of your trip? What kind of skills and abilities are needed for trip participants? Uh, how will gaining knowledge of the area you plan to visit from land managers, maps, and literature affect your, your understanding of your trip? And then what kind of equipment do you choose and comfort, sorry, and clothing do you use for comfort, safety, and leave no trace qualities? Finally, after the trip, how do you evaluate it uh, and what changes will you make afterwards? An example offered is that using one-pot meals and lightweight snacks requires a minimum amount of packaging and preparation time. It lightens the load and decreases the amount of garbage left behind. One pot meals require minimal cooking utensils and eliminate the need for a campfire. And they end with a reminder that stoves leave no trace. Okay. I can go with that. You know, that also kind of goes along with the, the idea of, you know, of lightweight packing this trend in backpacking, which is let's shed as much weight as we can and utilize and make it easier to go farther, faster over time. The second tra- principle is to travel and camp on durable surfaces. So we're encouraged to travel on established trails in order to minimize the broad impact on the land. Obviously, the more heavily traveled a trail is like the Appalachian trail, the more compact the, the trail soil is going to be. When having to travel off trail in remote areas or searching for a bathroom or the like, The type of surface we're walking on will just determine the amount of um, degeneration we can expect. So obviously things like rock and sand or gravel aren't a big deal. They're very durable. However, if you're walking over vegetation, it can be destroyed, some of it pretty easily. There's also one particular type of soil, particularly in the southwestern part of the U.S., called living soil that contains what is known as cryptobiotic uh, bacteria or it's cryptobiotic soil. It's very delicate and vulnerable to foot traffic. It contains tiny communities of little organisms that appear as blackish and irregular raised crust on the sand. This crust retains moisture in the desert climates and provides a protective layer, protecting or keeping it from eroding. One footstep is able to destroy this fragile soil and should only be done when necessary. It makes me feel bad because it reminds me of in the summer, I think of 1998, Maybe, maybe it was in 97. Some friends of mine and I went down to Southern Utah to camp in a slot Canyon. Once we made it to the Canyon itself, we had a blast, but because of poor planning, we missed the trail and got stuck in an area covered with cryptobiotic soil. As it got dark, we camped on a flat rock and tried our best to get back to the trail while minimally impacting the living soil. But the sum is that we needed to hike on part of it, because we didn't prepare ourselves well enough to know how to follow the trail properly the first time. I've always felt bad about that. Likewise, it is encouraged to camp even in high use areas uh, in a way that is not visible to others. Staying particularly about 200 yards from waters, which will allow animals in the evenings to have a pathway to water. Generally, it is considered best to camp on sites that are so highly impacted that further use will cause no noticeable impact. I have a feeling from what I've studied on maps and literature on the AT so far, that there won't be any problem identifying the places that have been impacted uh, previously to camp. The third principle is dispose of waste properly. Now in the fifth episode, we talked about disposing one's personal waste and keeping oneself clean uh, for a bit. But this also applies to trash. Growing up, I was taught that if you packed it in, you have to pack it out. This meant everything, including trash that that was uh, that had to be removed, that, that, you, that we brought in with us. I don't know whether this was just an intrinsically granola thing we did in the Northwest, but packing out trash is an important aspect of Leave No Trace. Trace. It astounds me how much trash there is in outdoor places. We have a woods near our house where we frequently hike and uh, go for walks. Last weekend, we brought with us a plastic bag to fill up some trash and came home with 15 pounds. I mean, that was just in like an hour and a half of walking through. It's amazing how much trash one can find when one actually looks. Now, not only is garbage something that needs to be packed out, in certain places, Packing it out includes human waste, like up at the Muir Base Camp on Mount Rainier or the Riverside Campsites in the Grand Canyon. According to the Leave No Trace website, this has become more of the norm over time. I don't know if it's going to be expected at the Appalachian Trail. I know there's privies throughout the trail from time to time, and that should minimize the problem of people disposing uh, their human waste uh, incorrectly. But it is a problem when people don't dispose of their poop properly in the woods. To reiterate how one is supposed to dispose of one's waste, there are four key steps. Number one, move 200 steps or 200 yards from a water source. You don't want to contaminate the water. Two, dig a hole approximately eight inches deep and four inches wide. Three, do your, do your business and then bury the human waste. And then four, either completely bury the toilet paper, which you should be using as little as possible, or four, pack it out. Cover and disguise the hole with natural items when finished. Finally, wastewater from cleaning and soaps should be used and dispersed at least 200 feet from any water locations. All right, let's move on to the fourth principle, leave what you find. I guess the main idea here is to follow the adage, quote, take only pictures, leave only footprints, unquote. The big thing here is don't mess around the stuff that's around, like archaeological ruins, dig ditches, or other things. Avoiding damaging, avoid damaging living trees and plants by nailing things or carving your initials or something into the wood. Leave natural and cultural artifacts alone. They're not ours to take with us, and in some cases they're protected by law. Just make common sense. One of the things that was an aspect of this principle that gave me a little bit of pause is that you're not supposed to like dig trenches on established camping ground sites. It made me think back to a scout camp I attended with my son's troop in uh, in Switzerland. Kenderstegg Scout Reservation, which is one of the most beautiful places on earth, and if you ever have a chance to go there, you should, but they take Leave No Trace extremely seriously, and the campsites as a result are so heavily impacted that it's kind of like sleeping on cement. Anyway, when we were there, it rained the entire week, and when I meant it rained, I mean it literally came, was pouring much of the week, and so we actually it was so bad. We actually dug a small trench through the cement ground and created, um, poured rocks in it to kind of make a little bit of a a path so that the water would go into it and drain a little bit better until the camping folks told us that we had to put it all back and had to stop. Okay. So the water had to flow over the ground as opposed to going down into the ground. But, That is what the principle is, and leave it to the Swiss to follow the rules. And this leads us to our sponsor. And we're back. The fifth principle is to minimize campfire impacts. With the blessing of modern camp stoves, campfires are no longer necessary to cook food in the woods, which saddens me deeply. I love a big fire, and there's nothing I like more than the peace and quiet of the woods, plus fire dancing in the dark. I find it incredibly relaxing. It's a wonderful camping tradition that I understand is not necessary, per se, for a successful camping evening, but it's awful fun. The key thing here is to keep fires and establish fire pits. And if there isn't a fire pit, um, do everything to leave. No, and you have to build a fire, leave no trace of the fire. Um, I guess, you know, on the AT, I will forgo fires as much as possible, unless it's in an established fire pit. I mean, I have a fire ring in the fire pit in my backyard with a stack of wood, so it's not like I'll be missing out. I can just go and have more fires in the backyard. It's just not the same when you hear the noise from the street. Anyway, we're talking about Leave No Trace, things that I can do to be a better steward of the land. But they do offer two suggestions for types of fires that are in fact leave no trace when there is no firing, which I thought was interesting. And so I'll, I'll describe them. The first is a, what they call a mound fire where you put down a plastic bag or something that protects the ground. And on top of that, you pile about five inches thick of organic matter. And then you build your fire on top of that. The soil absorbs the heat that protect and and kind of keeps the trash bag from melting and the trash bag can easily clean, you know, help you clean up and leave literally no trace of the fire while putting the soil back around in a way that looks natural. The second way to build a fire is similar is similar in that you, um, you have like a fire plate that you bring with you and then you build up underneath the fire plate, some soil, Um, that's loose soil or that's already been disturbed and then build your fire on top of that. And then you, you know, you crush down the ashes and then you spread them out in in the woods to make it natural. Um, so that is a way in which one can have a fire. If one, one feels, um, it just feels like it takes a lot of weight and is a lot pretty excessive. I mean, I understand why one of the reasons why we want to limit fires, particularly in more arid areas, um, that are prone to fire damage, particularly out west. You know, one bad fire in certain environments can lead to massive amounts of destruction. Uh, just look at the Paradise Fire that I think was started by a couple errant uh, cigarette butts. Um, anyway, fire can be de- deadly. It can, it, And even when contained, it can scar the land. So I get it. The sixth principle is to respect wildlife. I don't know how respectful it is, but I want most wildlife to follow the same rules that the leave no trace people ask of me. I want them to observe me from a safe distance and make quiet movements. I don't want them to pursue me or feed me or flee from the area. And that's what they're we're asked to do for wildlife as well. Uh, we're not we're supposed to not pursue, feed, or flee from an area involving wildlife and keep a safe distance, making quiet movements so as not to scare them or startle them. They do make an exception for bear country because apparently it's better to make some noise so that bears can hear you. So they aren't going to be startled by your behavior or my behavior in this instance. So I don't think that there's going to be bears in the area that I'm in, there might be some black bears but, you know, definitely not grizzlies. So making some noise is going to be, I guess, okay. So instead of acting on our own, we're encouraged to notify game wardens if we can see or come across sick or troubled animals, um, so that they can take care of them properly and in, in, you know, that we need to stay about 200 yards away from water sources, um, when we're uh, camping once again to make sure that animals have a passageway to, um, to get water at night all right now this leads to our seventh and last principle of leave no trace which is be considerate of other visitors essentially follow the golden rule and treat other people how you or you or me would like to be treated respecting others by protecting their ability to have a great trip We all have our own way of being in the woods. For me, I just like it quiet and pleasant, and I want to hear the sounds of nature all around me. Uh, The key here is making space for uh, all the people who are on the trail and being considerate of them. I guess this is the one place where, you know, in a practical human-to-human sense, uh, uh, Aretha Franklin's respect actually has some play. There's also some basic etiquette um, for the trail to help uh, ease and navigate the flow of people and um, going up on some of these very narrow trails. For instance, on a narrow trail, people coming down the hill are to step aside for those coming up. That makes sense. Hikers are to yield to equestrians, also makes sense. And mountain bikers are supposed to yield to both hikers and equestrians both. Okay. Uh, take breaks on durable surfaces off the trail and then keep animals under control and clean up after them. Okay. All that makes sense. It's really simple. It really is very golden rule-ish and it shouldn't be too hard to follow. And, you know, I think in summary, like, I think it's very difficult to know how we're going to be able to manage increased numbers of people on the Appalachian Trail and elsewhere in uh, in the backwoods if we aren't able to follow some of these longer, uh, some of these tried-and-true established principles for making sure that these trails and these wild places are able to ma- be maintained for future generations. Otherwise, it's all going to get wrecked. Um, they're going to move the start and end points of the trails to places where people well, places where people can do whatever they want, or maybe even become stricter about the rules or, uh, heaven forbid they're going to start permitting who may and may not be on the Appalachian trail, which I think would be terrible. Um, but it's what's going to happen if, uh, if people don't respect the trail and respect the earth and around them while they're doing it. Anyway, that's it for me and this episode. Um, if you have any comments, uh, or want to rate this episode, please do so on uh, your podcasting app. Um, five stars help other people find out about this. And as you can see, we're we're getting better. We're making progress on a number of fronts. Um, next week, the plan is to uh, talk more about navigation and not getting lost, which I think will be a great episode. And I look forward to catching up with you then. Until then, so long.